Welcome to Seminars at Steamboat, lectures on important public policy issues from Steamboat Springs, Colorado. The following seminar features Camille Doucette delivering a lecture called Thinking Differently About Race and Public Policy. Camille Doucette, PhD, is the director of the Race, Prosperity, and Inclusion Initiative, Brookings Institution's cross-program initiative focused on issues of equity, racial justice, and economic mobility for low-income communities and communities of color. The seminar was recorded on August 23, 2021. Good evening, everyone, and thank you, Joella. We're delighted tonight to welcome Camille Bousset, who is the director of the Race, Prosperity, and Inclusion Initiative at the Brookings Institution. The, the initiative focuses on issues of equity, racial justice, and economic mobility for low-income communities and communities of color. Prior to joining Brookings, Camille was an executive at the World Bank, where she led its financial inclusion innovation arm, working globally with financial service executives on regulatory data and cybersecurity issues. Camille was the first CEO of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau's Office of Financial Education, where she initiated research on financial well-being and was a member of the policy and executive management teams. She has worked on behalf of low-income populations at the Center for American Progress and with organizations that help people manage their money in order to improve their financial health. You can read more about her extensive and impressive career on our website, seminarsatsteamboat.org. And as Joella said, let me remind you also that you can ask questions via the chat link that you will find at the bottom of your screen. Please feel free to post questions at any time during her presentation. After Camille has finished her talk, I will moderate the Q&A session. Please join me in welcoming Camille Bousset, our seventh and final speaker of Seminars at Steamboat's 2021 season. Camille? Thank you, Linda, for that very, very kind introduction. Good evening, everybody. I'm thrilled to be here. Uh, I especially want to thank my colleague, Belle Sawhill, for extending an invitation to me to engage with all of you. Um, I'm really looking forward to our discussion. Um, but before we do that, I'm going to uh, address um, the concepts, some of the concepts that underpin modern day racial dynamics in the US. And first I'm gonna to speak to you about space and the importance of space and racial dynamics in the US because I believe space plays a unique role in the ways in which racism and discrimination are reinforced, negotiated and contested in the US. Second, I'm going to discuss the importance of slavery as an institution for understanding disparities in wages and wealth. So very light topics there. So the, as I mentioned, the, one of the key themes for this discussion is the concept of space. And the space I'm referring to here is obviously not, not outer space, um, but it is the physical, cultural, and historical space. So if you remember nothing else from this discussion, I do want you to remember that space has been and continues to be on the front lines of race relations in the US. So from slave ships to plantations to the Jim Crow era, when statues recognizing Confederate heroes were erected to Plessy versus Ferguson, lunch counters, buses, and more recently, Starbucks, Yale University dorms, immigration detention centers, enforcing white supremacy in everyday life has relied heavily on concepts of who can be where, whose ambit is free, and whose is deeply constrained. The concept of space and the regulation of space 
serves to remind everyone where you are welcome and where you are not. And depending on who the you is, you will find you're welcome everywhere or almost nowhere. We are all familiar with the incident that took place in 2018 in a Philadelphia Starbucks. Two young entrepreneurs, African-American, were waiting to meet a professional contact when one of the Starbucks employees called the police to remove the men who were, it turns out, doing nothing more than sitting and waiting. With the advent of citizen journalism, we were all able to see what happened. And these young men were handcuffed by the police and removed from the Starbucks while other Starbucks patrons and the man who, uh, who those entrepreneurs were meeting contested the police action. While Starbucks ultimately apologized, settled with the men for $1, ran their employees through anti-bias training and fired the employee who had called the police. The fact remains that the message was clear that Starbucks employees sing, that Starbucks employee singled out those two young men because they were black and it took, took it upon herself to make the judgment that they were in the wrong place and that the space in Rittenhouse Square did not belong to them and that she had the authority and power to enforce the type of segregation of space that has been the norm from the moment slave ships arrived here over 400 years ago. We have seen similar kinds of things happen since 2018. Uh, and there's a whole genre of, you know, living while black videos. Where are you welcome and where are you not? This country has a long history of telling black and brown people that they do not have the right to occupy a range of physical spaces. That history has shouted, we do not want you here. After the Civil War, in particular during the Jim Crow era, many hundreds of statues commemorating Confederate heroes were erected in public squares on streets, in office buildings, and schools, um, where office buildings and schools were named after Confederate leaders, all to say to freed men and women that this is still our space and we do not, we will do with it what we like, and we do not want you here, so you are not welcome here. An interesting fact, an economist at the American policy, at the Economic Policy Institute has shown that the rate of African-American voting is today lower in places that have a preponderance of Confederate street names and statues than in places that do not have those attributes. That Jim Crow set of cultural practices around the regulation of space became more formalized in the 1920s and 1930s in several ways. First, it became common to erect signs that regulated the occupancy of physical space. Signs that said no Negroes or no dogs, no coloreds, or there's a colored entrance in the back, et cetera, continued a long tradition of the regulation of black and brown people in public and private spaces in the US. Second, residential covenants, which specified high value to low value real estate tracts enforced spatial segregation throughout cities and towns in the US, redlining as it's known, uh, still exacts a price today. Most, most African-Americans who do own homes, own homes the market value of which is lower than that of similar homes owned by white families. And my uh, colleague Andre Perry has done a lot of work on this in Brad Brookings. And for those who do not own homes, many live in areas that have been 
uh, decimated by decades of disinvestment and neglect. Third, Blacks in particular were subject to terrorism. So lynchings and the Tulsa race massacre of 1921 are uh, previous examples of terrorism. And in the modern day era, uh, police bias, racial bias in policing is another example of terrorism. As it turns out, this is an especially effective way of regulating space. Um, and as you know, until relatively recently, segregation existed in schools, universities, in workplaces, and exclusion from certain professions and from unions were the norm. All of that has added up to where we are now, a place that has regulated physical as well as historical space. When we look at our history, our official history as a nation has routinely excluded the contributions of the original Americans, of African Americans, of Asian Americans, and Latino Americans. And it is because that official history has been so exclusionary that we need to have museums such as the National Museum of African American History and Culture dedicated to showcasing specific histories and contributions. People of color are not seen as part of the tapestry of official US history. So we need to understand how our regulation of space and who regulates it perpetuates inequities throughout our society. When you tell people they are not welcome somewhere, when you build schools that look like jails, when you treat black and brown preschoolers and typical teenagers as criminals, you are clearly saying you do not belong here. When you over-police, so black neighborhoods tend to have far more aggressive policing than white neighborhoods, you are also regulating space. And the impact of that regulation of space has consequences. According to the US Census in 2019, 18.8% of African Americans were living in poverty. And this was the lowest rate observed, this was absolutely the lowest rate observed since poverty estimates were first produced for this group in 1959, so it's almost 20%. The corresponding poverty rate for whites for 2019 was 7.3%. In addition, today there is a significant racial wealth gap where white house households have eight times more wealth than black households. Moreover, our criminal justice system preys heavily on black families. Black boys have an average of one, in, have an, uh, on average, a one in three chance of being incarcerated. And in some cities, it's much higher than that. And while many state judicial systems have moved away from non-unanimous juries, some, like heavily black Louisiana, still retain them, a vestige of ensuring that African-Americans do not move too far away from a life of incarceration and therefore separation from whites. We know that whites are more likely to use drugs in the United States, but blacks are more likely to be arrested and convicted for possessing drugs. Regulating space is a very American phenomenon. We have created Indian reservations, camps for Japanese citizen, Japanese American citizens, and cages for young children coming from Mexico, Central, and South America. The results are rarely good and never in keeping with, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, 
that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among, among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now I wanna turn our attention to the institution of slavery. As we know, this was an especially brutal form of servitude. And there were some uh, key elements which today shape some important dynamics in the US economy. So let's start with the basics. I think it's well known that enslaved African-Americans were not paid for their labor. That's the, the whole premise. And that this has been the central point of discussions of reparations for black Americans. Even after the Civil War, African-Americans remained in virtual servitude as poorly compensated day laborers. This has set the stage for a consistent trend in racial wage dynamics in the US. In the US, we know that there are many, many disparities in wages and pay. Women on average earn 80 cents to every man's dollar. People who only have high school degrees on average earn less than those with some college. But there are notable race-based, uh, persistent race-based disparities as well. In 2019, African-American women earned on average 63 cents for every dollar earned by white men. African-American men on average earned 75 cents for every dollar earned by white men. But fewer African-American men are in the workforce. They tend to experience the highest unemployment rate in the US. Race-based disparities in pay exist all the way from hourly labor to career professionals. And it turns out that having a college degree does not on average for African-Americans and particularly for African-American males net the same type of financial gains that it does for white Americans. So where does that leave us? The combination of spatial segregation and the acceptance of the fact of unequal pay based on attitudes about the value of people can lead to public policies that produce unequal and discriminatory results. But how do we know when public policies are racially unjust? Sometimes it's pretty easy and sometimes it's really not easy. So for example, there tend to be a lot, many, many African-American neighborhoods in the US that are close to toxic waste dumps or railroads or some kind of undesirable and unhealthy uh, industrial edifice. Uh, that's a fairly, that seems fairly straightforward. That kind of persistent pattern seems like, okay, there's something going on there that is um, race-based. Likewise, um, uh, schools, public schools that are in predominantly African-American neighborhoods also tend to perform more poorly. They tend to be more poorly resourced. Overall, I just have poor, they, poor, they don't serve their uh, students very well, serve their students very poorly. That again, seems to be a vestige of racial dynamics and pretty, pretty racial, racialized policies in the school systems. There are more complicated examples of racial injustice and those complicated examples include, for instance, credit scores. So we think about credit scores as fairly neutral, where uh, basically credit scores are determined by, you know, an algorithm. Um, but what's interesting about algorithms is that, particularly for credit scores, is that they 
assume that everybody starts off at the same place. You have to, if you're going to use an algorithm, everybody starts off at the same place. And some people engage in behaviors. This is the assumption. Some people engage in behaviors that make their financial lives very difficult and others engage in behaviors that, you know, reward their financial decisions. But it turns out the initial assumption that everybody starts out in the same place is obviously flawed. Credit scores reward your ability to pay. Your ability to pay is based on income and wealth. If you're starting on the back foot on both of those things, it's very going to be very difficult for you to do well in the kind of credit scoring system that we have. Another example of a more complicated policy that you know, you're not really sure what's going on there is the black wealth deficit more generally. So we're at a point now in the United States where African-Americans get college degrees, some of them go on for graduate degrees, some of them, you know, work, uh, you know, many, many hundreds of thousands work in private industry, et cetera. And you would expect that at some point the racial wealth gap would uh, um, close. We haven't seen that. We haven't seen the racial wealth gap close to any appreciable level. So there's, there's, a, there's a, a set of policies having to do with finances, with the wages that you're paid, with the way you're remunerated, with the kinds of benefits you get at jobs, et cetera, that don't, uh, don't end up being equivalent for African-Americans and for other folks. So there are a number of uh, policies which on the face of it could look very neutral. There are others that are clearly racist, but we know that in pub the public policy space, we're gonna to have to sort through a range of public policies for whom the outcome turns out to be racially unjust. One of the interesting things that one of my colleagues at Brookings has looked at is that despite the consequences of the regulation of space in the US and the uh, disparities in income and wealth, um, is that uh, African-Americans and Latinos, when they are surveyed on their levels of optimism, tend to be much more optimistic than white Americans. It's a very interesting finding and it's consistent. She's been doing these surveys for years and it's consistently that way. So one of the things that I think about when I do my work is how do we build on this optimism that has, is always there that African-Americans and others really buy into the American system and the American dream. So how do we build on that optimism? How do we create a sense of belonging in all spaces after more than 400 years of working extremely hard to say that you do not belong? We do that, I think, by challenging ourselves to imagine a future where space, both literal and figurative, is the province of all. So, to affect change, when we think about policy, do we start with outcomes like the racial wealth gap, like the fact that African-American men are less likely to be in the labor force? Or do we start with belief systems or do we do them both? I think it's, we are at a very interesting inflection point because now we're seeing public policy leaders step up and try to work on both the belief systems and the outcomes. 
So some examples of belief systems are changing street names or names of institutions, uh, getting rid of um, Confederate statues. Some examples of outcomes, working on outcomes, are the latest iteration of the payroll protection program, which is really targeted on um, sole proprietor uh, minority businesses. So there's an attempt to change the outcome, outcomes for those folks. Um, a lot of legislatures, state legislatures are thinking about changing criminal statutes for drug possessions. Um, and then of course there's a, both a local level, um, but also a national conversation about reparation. So that's a focus on outcomes. So the question is, how do we imagine a future where this legacy of spatial regulation and this legacy of tolerance of real um, disparities, uh, consistent disparities, racial disparities in pay and in compensation and wealth exist? How do we reimagine that future and what a role do policies play in our ability to address both the belief system and the outcomes? I am gonna stop there and I welcome a very robust discussion. Thank you. Thank you, Camille. That was very provocative and gave us a lot to think about. But I wanna ask you a question about that video. That looks to me like microaggressions. Um, when we clutch our purse a little more closely, when we pass an African-American on the street, when we take our child and move the child from one side, from one hand to the other hand, when we pass somebody, could you address the microaggressions that we all see every day, but don't recognize as such? Sure, I mean, I think, uh, you know, one of the interesting things about just being human is we, um, we develop a, a sort of little code book in our heads that tells us this is dangerous, this is not, this is risky, this is not. And what I think is unfortunate and enduring in the US system is that we have attached um, a very negative set of attributes to African-Americans, but particularly to African-American men. And so I think what that video does is it really demonstrates, you know, here's an African-American man, you can't really tell that he's a professional as you first, you know, encounter him, but the sort of almost um, sort of primitive reactions are to be on guard. And, uh, and I think that says a lot about our history and how we have over time have thought about particularly African-American males as scary and violent. Um, and so when I think about making changes in our you know, public policy changes, I always in the, head, in the back of my head, I always think, but we also have these cultural beliefs um, that you know, manifest themselves in what we call microaggressions. Um, I want to ask a question about the impact that discrim discriminatory policies have on other people besides the minorities at whom they're targeted. Because it yep. seems to me that everybody gets impacted by racially discriminatory policies. Could you address that, please? Yeah, I think that's a, I think that is a, a really excellent insight. And the way I think about that is um, in a couple of different uh, realms. So on a more localized level, when you have redlining, for instance, which you know unfortunately has um, affected lots and lots of cities in the US, um, 
What that does essentially is it creates um, zones that are really highly disinvested uh, in which there's a lot of disinvestment. And when you have that, um, those, that means those zones cannot be open to everybody. Like no one wants to go there, right? So you're limiting the, the, you know, the real estate, literally, you're limiting the real estate that's available to everybody. And if you have enough of those kinds of places, then your uh, the, the actual real estate, like housing and residential real estate, tends to be limited to very specific areas. And that means your, your um, you know, the cost of housing can really be driven up because you don't have the larger, you know, supply, so to speak. So I think of it that way in terms of limiting um, what is valuable and also limiting other areas that people could, you know, really be living in and enjoying themselves in, et cetera. And of course, redevelopment is meant to address that. Gentrification does address that, uh, but not in, in, in ways that are, you know, particularly positive. I also think about our economy generally. Um, and whenever you have discriminatory policies, that means that not everybody is able to um, reach their full potential. And when you're thinking about the US economy in a competitive global space, you know, we compete with uh, China and India and everybody else, um, to not have 20% of your population reaching its potential, let's say, or slightly more than that, I think it, it does, it ultimately limits the economy as well. It limits the local economy, meaning it limits the consumer-driven economy locally, uh, but it also limits who we are as Americans functioning in the economy and functioning in a global economy. So I think there are lots of um, negative elements to having a discriminatory um, system in the U.S. As you might imagine, there's several questions on critical race theory. Oh, so yes, of course. Could you, yeah. could you please address the negative orientation and the political divide that seems to be surfacing with critical race theory? Sure. Um, you know, uh, it, it, you know, I think it's, well, first of all, let me just say that critical race theory is essentially um, taking a fresh look at a range of statistics and research and history, et cetera, and uh, evaluating where it is that racial dynamics have been imprinted on that history. That's basically what critical race theory is. Um, so people who misunderstand the intent think that um, critical race theory is really about blaming whites, current day white people, <laughs> um, for the outcomes that we see. But in fact, what it is meant to do is it's meant to broaden the intellectual palette with which we analyze events and outcomes. So how do we get people comfortable with critical race theory? There seems to be so much division about it. No, I think that's a, I think that's a great question. And, and I actually, you know, I'm actually one of these people that feel like it's okay if some people aren't comfortable with it. Um, I think it, it currently is, um, it's a stand-in for people's discomfort with all things um, that are focused on opening doors and opening doors for a range of folks who are not white. And I think it, it's, it's a signifier of discomfort with 
discussions around equity. So it's never, um, it's never socially acceptable to say that you don't want equity, but it has become somewhat in some circles acceptable to say we don't want critical race theory. So I see, I, I think of it as masquerading um, and trying to cover for another set of attitudes that have to do with equity. Um, and so, you know, I'm one of those folks like, well, people don't like critical race theory, that's fine. But the main thing is we want folks to understand that it's important when we think about policies, we think about, you know, policies with the small P and with a big P, that we think about the importance of uh, equity and making sure that we are providing an equitable solution in whatever those policy domains are. Do we need to rename, rename it, critical race theory to something else to make it more palatable to people? I think, you know, I think, I think that would be one way to do it. I think critical race theory, the, the, the notion of critical, right, is obviously coming from academe. Um, where it has a certain valence. Uh, but I think to think about it as just sort of adding another set of tools to the way that we think about um, history in the United States and current events, um, I think is probably a more palatable and um, maybe less provocative way of thinking, uh, of treating the same type of, of subject matter. So we've got young people watching this right now. And two of them are curious to know whether or not you feel that racial relations have improved or degraded during your lifetime. Okay, so I'm 58 years old. Um, so I was born in 1962. So, uh, you know, um, that's a pretty, pretty long swath there. Um, and it's interesting, I've had this very same conversation with my son who's almost 16. And um, in my view, things have improved, but um, I don't think they've improved to the degree that they should have in 58 years, I guess is probably how I would put it. So, um, you know, we are, we are not sitting at the back of buses, so this is a good thing, but that we should never have been doing that. Um, uh, but we are, but, but, you know, we may not be sitting at the back of buses, but it's still difficult for um, African-Americans and you know, other other folks of color to make inroads in boardrooms to executive management, um, uh, you know, to be able to be considered competent if they get into or excellent if they get into top schools. Most people think oh, it's affirmative action or you know they cut some deal for you or whatever. So I do think that um, there have we've made a lot of strides as a country, but it, this is you know an evolving picture and in my view um, has evolved a little too glacially for where we really should be. Another question is, uh, is being asked about how the federal and state governments should address space as a concept. How do they do that in implementing policy? That's a great question. I'll, I'll deal with it um, uh, in two parts. So uh, like locally and the at the state level, so I think there are lots of opportunities, particularly now, um, to think about our uh, in environments or the, the built environment and how that built environment um, either helps us thrive or doesn't help us thrive. And um, so I think a lot of people know about environmental justice. I would expand that concept to think about the built environment and make sure that when we're thinking about rebuilding things or having development projects, et cetera, that we are thinking about 
how to make sure that everyone in our community is enjoying the same same things, bike lanes or you know parks or recreation centers, and that they all are you know um, they're evenly distributed and they're easy to get to, et cetera. So I think just rethinking the whole built environment um, I think is important, and it's actually a fairly I think current um, thought now when we, we particularly this is where I want to address the federal level, particularly now when we're thinking about um, a huge infusion that has to do with infrastructure. So when you're thinking about an infrastructure bill, you know, we, the one that's passed the Senate is really about more traditional infrastructure. But when you think about traditional infrastructure, um, think about how many uh, highways or railroads or, you know, electric transformer farms are sitting in uh, communities of color. And you can think about replanning that and, you know, rezoning, redeveloping, replanning where those things are or just, you know, eliminating them completely. So I think there are lots of opportunities now to think about the built environment, particularly with the um, what's likely to be a very large infusion of federal money. So uh, in terms of the federal response to the built environment and to spaces, um, you know, the federal government, of course, has always been on the forefront, EEOC, et cetera, you know, Justice Department working on a lot of the um, legal aspects of uh, spatial seg segregation. But spatial segregation is really cultural. And um, I think uh, to the extent that in housing policy, again, in infrastructure policy and environmental uh, policy, we take into account um, the voices that aren't always at the table. I think that's gonna be very important to making sure we actually turn the corner um, on the regulation of spaces uh, in a way that is enduring, sustainable and allows people to thrive. That's one thing. Then there's a whole conversation around policing. And policing is, if, if nothing else, is sort of the raw definition of how you really regulate space, um, that and zoning. So those are the two areas where I think at a local level, we have a lot of opportunity. We also have a lot of resistance, but I think we have a lot of, a lot of opportunity to think about, you know, when is it appropriate for us to have a heavy hand uh, with the police? When is it appropriate to have um, really restrictive zoning? And when is it not appropriate? So when is it that those two things collide with allowing communities of color to thrive? And when is it that they don't? So, and having a really robust discussion that involves the folks who are affected, I think is very important. So do different parts of the country experience uh, spatial inequality differently? Um, I think I think that, yes, that I think, yes, that is absolutely true. Um, I think overall, I would say the US is pretty, um, pretty much a leader in uh, spatial regulation, but, um, uh, but, there have, been, there have been some recent reports which have shown actually that the Northeast is probably the most segregated in terms of housing and that sort of thing. Um, uh, that the uh, Southeast is the most regulated with respect to using the criminal justice to regulate activity and space. Um, and then the other parts uh, of, of the country like Colorado have a little less of that with particular cities in particular areas having maybe higher levels than maybe their state does. 
So for instance, Peoria in Illinois, Racine in Wisconsin, higher levels of that kind of regulation than you might have in the overall state. Well, it's interesting, you know, Steamboat Springs, I think has a minority population of give or take 12 to 14%. Mm -hmm. So in a, in a community that has such a small minority population, how do you deal with those kind of issues in that kind of a community? Um, that's a great question. And I'd love to hear, um, I'd love to hear from, you know, our viewers on, on this, but, you know, to me, I think the main thing is um, we have to make sure that whenever we are making decisions, so if those are urban planning, city planning, economic development decisions, that we have as many voices as we possibly can at the table. And sometimes that's going to mean reaching out to that, you know, 12% of the population and just making sure they're included in those discussions those decisions and they're informing um, whatever those plans are. I think that is the most important thing. I think, I think the thing that we 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 really um, that, that sometimes we miss is we're in a space we're in a space with people we know and we trust and we don't ask ourselves who is not here. And I think asking that question, particularly in a, like the context that you just mentioned, the smaller places that um, don't have these huge populations, just asking who is not here and, and making sure you're proactive around that, I think is very, very important. There are some issues that I think bear some ex exploration. So how do you explain if and when politics may have affected policies in areas such as welfare reform or public housing or schooling, even transportation? So, um, so the, the question is, is it politics versus just, uh, you know, structural racism? I think right. is that the, the setup? Does okay. politics play a role or does it not? How, how does that impact? No, those? politics, I think, is ex ex exceedingly important um, when you're talking about policies. Politics is basically how do you pull together a coalition to get it, what it is you want done? Um, and uh, in the U.S., um, sometimes those coalitions have included people of color and they're very important to actually getting a policy done. And sometimes they have not included those folks. So uh, politics, the art of the possible is really the art of pulling together those coalitions. And it's very, very important to public policy. That's how you get a lot of things done, except for regulatory action. It's pretty much how you get a lot of things done. So when we're thinking about transportation or housing policies at the local, state, the federal, all those levels, it's about, do you have enough votes, enough of a coalition in the people who are like-minded to be able to pass your policy or you know, get it to a point where you want it to get, get to, or do you need to bring in other people? And so where, um, you know, where policymakers uh, bring in communities of color, it's because they need them politically to do that. Um, so I think politics is actually an important part of policy generally, but policy is undergirded by a set of values. So those values kind of shape what the discourse is going to be. They shape um, what the shape essentially, what's the art of the possible? And so uh, you start with the values, you start with that foundation, 
you devise the various policy options, and then you put together your coalition and you, you know, use that coalition to get the policy done. But the policies are based on a foundation that has to do with values um, and what we consider important and who we consider important um, in this country. And so policy is a, you know, a result of those values plus the actual, you know, coalition building. And that's how we get the policies we have. One of our viewers acknowledges that the United States is becoming more and more diverse. I think we can see that even in advertisements where you see interracial couples in many ads these days that you never saw anything like that before. Right. And so the question is, which of the various racial disparities should we should we focus on first? Oh, that's a you know I I um it's a very good question and um it's one that I I think sort of ended with, which is, you know, where do you focus on outcomes? Do you focus on um, the attitudes that lead to those outcomes? So to me, from a very pragmatic pers perspective, um, in this country, if you really want people to be able to reach their full potential, you start, I think, with the disparities between um, black males black boys and black males and everyone else. So um, in, the, in the US, when you look at all our statistics, black men and black boys uh, end up less likely to fulfill their potential than everybody else, except for Native American men and boys who also fare extremely poorly and who also um, have very, very similar kinds of uh, experiences in the US. So to me, you focus there, um, you start exploring why that is the case, and you focus your policies on trying to eliminate those disparities. By definition, because black men and black boys live in families, there's going to, you're going to have to deal with, you know, how do you actually um, create a path forward for uh, their families to do well? How do you support them in school? How do you make sure that school, home, et cetera, all those are very nurturing environments? Um, and how do you make sure that as they progress through life, that they um, are supported and nurtured and able to take advantage of good jobs, good education, good jobs, uh, you know, housing opportunities, et cetera. So I think that's where you start because those are, those are the folks that, um, you know, at least from a data perspective are the ones who are showing the most amount of, um, the most amount of distress and the ones who, for whom that distress has been um, extremely longstanding. You mentioned families just a moment ago. And I think many people don't understand the talk that black parents have with their, especially their sons, their, their black sons. And so could you address the talk and explain to us how that manifests itself and how you talk to your young people about what's, what could be, what, what might be out there that they might face? Sure, I mean, I think there are very many, there are different versions of the talk depending on, you know, um, who you are and where you, you know, where you're situated. But I would say that the, at, at its very most basic, the talk is really about, you know, the world is not created equal. You will be not treated, you will not be treated um, with respect. Um, and you should expect 
that the outcomes you might see for white people are not going to be the outcomes that you're going to experience. And in fact, when you are uh, in an encounter with the police, it's highly likely that your life will be on the line, which is not going to be the same for you know, a white young person apprehended by the police. It's extraordinarily difficult to convey to young people like tween, you know, tweens and teens who are really at the apex of their self-confidence, which is just normal for that age group, um, that something devastating could happen to them despite their best efforts. And so the talk is really about, uh, in some ways, um, brutally and very cruelly bringing down that self-confidence and saying, yeah, you know, if you get handcuffed and you're, you know, end up in jail, that would be, that might actually be a good outcome because it would be better than being killed. Um, it's unfortunate, but it is, you know, as we've seen with George Floyd and a range of, you know, a whole host of other individuals who we've lost um, over the last few years, but it is actually a reality. And so I think black parents like myself are very careful to make sure that their young people, particularly their young men are aware of this as a possibility and know how to conduct themselves should they get into um, you know, a position where they are uh, interacting with the police in a, in a non-positive manner. Well, you might not be surprised to find out that there are questions about voter suppression. So yes. would, you, would you please address the issue of voter suppression and how it's manifesting itself in almost every state in the country? Well, right. So, you know, um, I tend to be a little more philosophical about this and I think maybe others might be. Um, so we just witnessed a, a very historic election where the turnout was incredibly robust and um, particularly robust in uh, you know, some of these, these key swing states, you know, Georgia, Arizona, uh, Nevada, et cetera. Um, and whenever you have um, a, something that, that uh, you have an outcome that doesn't meet with the expectations of those who are in power, they always try somehow to um, make sure they regain power. This is kind of a, I would say a dictum of, of politics. I used to be um, a study, a student of um, uh, communist regimes that had transitioned to democracies. So way back in the eighties and nineties. And it turns out that when people lose power, they don't like that. And they try in a variety of different ways to um, regain that power. So in some places it's very authoritarian, other countries, here we do it by uh, passing laws that try to um, suppress and you know, uh, make sure that, that uh, people of color in particular are not voting. What is interesting about some of these laws that have been passed is that they may end up suppressing um, votes across the board, um, making it very hard for particularly people in rural areas, for instance, to get out um, and vote. So I, I think it will be interesting to see what actually is the outcome. I think the intent of a lot of these state uh, 
um, legisl uh, these uh, legislative reforms is obviously to suppress votes, but it'll be very interesting to see if that actually happens. Um, and particularly in the context of a changing demographic picture, whether or not in some subsequent legislative session, those aren't repealed. Well, we have a question from your colleague, Isabel Sawhill. Okay, <laughs> this I know it's gonna be a tough one. <laughs> I don't know, you'll, you'll have to be the judge of that. She says, you've done a lot of work on social capital and so how, and how social networks are segregated. Um, and so the, the question is, can you talk about, talk about some of that and, and talk about the consequences of those? Sure, um, I'm, I'm happy to do that. Uh, Bill, thank you very much for the question. Um, so uh, what, what I did with a, another colleague of mine, Richard Reeves, um, who you might know, is we um, wanted to know if people's connections or social connections whether or not that had any impact on economic mobility. So what we did just very briefly is we interviewed hundreds of people in four different locations, um, tried to make those samples as representative as possible of those four different locations. So they were San Francisco, Washington, DC, Racine, Wisconsin, and Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, and what we asked people was when you wanna find a job, or uh, a housing opportunity or an educational opportunity, who do you turn to? And then describe those people to us. So what we found when, once we collected all the data, analyzed it actually quantitatively, is that um, uh, social networks that are, um, that are related to economic mobility, so to getting a job, uh, changing your housing situation or getting more education or training, those kinds of networks are highly racialized. So whites tend to have only whites in their networks. Um, blacks have mostly blacks, but have a few sprinklings of others. Latinos have mostly Latinos, but they also have sprinklings of others. Um, so it tends to be relatively racial, racially homogenous in this country. Um, and we also found that um, uh, white men, of course, were the most networked and um, uh, white women less so, black women less networked, but the worst, the more, most poorly networked were black men. And so what that all means is that when we're thinking about economic mobility, we're thinking about how do people get ahead, how do they get good jobs, et cetera, the networks uh, within which you're enmeshed are very, very important to how you end up from a financial and economic perspective. And so if your networks are small or very constrained, um, not particularly broad, and they only include a few people who are, you know, could really be helpful to you, then you're going to have very limited um, opportunities. And so we saw with black men that they typically had one network connection for all those things. Uh, and we have, we think, Part of the reason for that is that they are very highly regulated. They're regulated everywhere. They're pulled out of school at a more at much higher numbers. They tend not to be, in, in, you know, um, employed, et cetera. They tend not to be um, in college places where you form these networks. They tend not to be there, um, and pulled out for very various different reasons. So, what that means is, you know, these are folks who are not really plugged in to the kinds of networks that allow for that opportunity. But more importantly, from a policy perspective, 
when we when policymakers make policy, they make a, a assumptions about the transmission mechanisms of that policy. So, for instance, if you were the person who first put together the payroll protection program for uh, you know in the initial months of COVID, you would have expected that you put out you know you kind of blanket the airwaves with that um, announcement and that. Uh, people will you know, hear that and then they'll apply for these payroll protection programs, right? So it turns out that you need to be embedded in a social network that actually can convey that information. People who were not in a social network that could convey that information didn't apply for those programs. So they, they had subsequent versions of it and the most recent version of it under the Biden administration really uh, explicitly targeted um, sole proprietor, uh, um, minority entrepreneur, uh, uh, um, entrepreneurs and, and business owners, because they realized, you know, somehow the knowledge about these programs, um, about the payroll protection program just isn't filtering tr- through. And one of the reasons for that is that those folks are plugged into very different social networks. So how do you build allies? Who do you collaborate with to get, get some progress? In terms of social networks? Yes. Yeah, so social networks are all about who you feel comfortable with. Um, And you can't really force people to be together, but uh, when you have more, um, less segregated residential space, for instance, um, there's there's an economist at Harvard that has, Ross Chetty is his name, um, that has uh, essentially demonstrated that less segregated places residential settings tend to lead to better uh, economic mobility outcomes for um, African-American boys in particular, but generally for African-Americans and other racial minorities. Um, So if you have less segregated uh, um, housing, uh, then you are likely to have outcomes that are um, overall better in terms of social networks. Uh, And um, when you think about zoning, when you think about how people are really, you know, a lot of people might be thinking, I love my neighborhood. I don't want a, um, you know, multifamily uh, building here. So you want to think about how do you make changes in zoning laws so that people who own single family homes feel like it actually enhances their property value. So there's a lot of there are a lot of different, I think, ways of approaching this. But I do think residential segregation is one um, very important thing. And then um, the uh, making sure that schools also have um, a very diverse population is also very important because that's where people tend to form their social networks as well. On a broader scale, what about organizations like the Industrial Areas Foundation and their, their efforts to try to bring communities together and force public policy at the local level? Are they effective? Well, I think some of those are very effective and some of them, you know, it just depends on who um, ends up being participant in the conversation and informing those conversations. But I think any effort that's made to um, make sure that there are lots of diverse voices um, is always going to be welcome and it's always a very important way of broadening those social networks. Well, you might be interested, of course, in the fact that that 15-year-old who's watching, who I told you about a few few minutes ago, 
now wants to know, what is it you hope for for your 16 year old? What do you tell him? So um, great question. <laughs> uh, first of all, I hope he has a normal year, um, but I, I don't know, you know how likely that is. Um, and I hope my 15 year old um, viewer also has a very normal school year. Um, but what I, what I really do hope is that um, for all you know, young people who are in that, those age groups, that they really um, are able to uh, live in a place where everybody really can just meet their aspirations, that there really isn't a difference in educational quality between one community and the next. That people are able to get a job, whether their name is, you know, Jason or Deshaun, whether, you know, that they're, they're able to um, uh, afford to go to um, schools without racking up a huge uh, student loan debt. Um, you know, I really want them to be able to thrive and, you know, for my son to be able to have every option open to them without somebody, you know, saying that, you know, this isn't something that this isn't, isn't a place where we, we think you should be. Um, and I just want to have that the opportunity for them to have those those, you know, broad range of opportunities um, and also to be in a, a position where uh, they see a lot of people like them in similar kinds of occupations, in similar kinds of settings. Um, and then where there really just isn't a lot of uh, emphasis placed on race. What about mentors? How important are mentors to the underserved population? Well, mentors are important to everybody, right? Everybody, I think, um, benefits from having a mentor. Um, what, there have been a lot of studies of mentorships, particularly um, for more underserved populations, and the quality of the mentorship really makes a difference. So if the mentor is really focused on the total person uh, is in there for a very long time. So there's a very strong relationship. That mentor can be very, in, very influential in um, unlocking uh, social networks that that other individual may not have had. So that can be very good. But mentorships that are more like, um, you know, I'm going to have you as an intern for a quarter and then you're going to go on your way and there's very little emotional and relationship investment, those tend to be not as um, successful. How do we judge? How do we judge success? How do we know when we've made it? In in the in this uh, space, in terms of men mentorship, mentorship, not space. just mentorship, but in the in the um, space of, of discrimination and attitudes yeah. of people towards people who are different from them. How do we know when we when we've reached a goal? What what are the milestones that we might look for? Yeah, so that's great. Um, I I actually think that one of the things we should be looking for is making sure that um, we don't have, when, when we do not have any more disparities in education or employment outcomes, we will have essentially made it. Um, I think those are lagging indicators of uh, discrimination. And um, they say a lot about our attitudes and uh, if we get to the point where there are no disparities, really, we'll be in good shape. Like just when we think about um, the uh, unequal pay for unequal work between men and women, we will have made it when there are no, no more disparities. Women earn 100% of what men earn. 
Well, as a, as a final question, I might want to ask you um, about how to get more people to understand that enabling one group doesn't necessarily mean taking things away from another group. This zero sum game that we seem to be playing, if you win, I lose. How do we get people past that notion? You know, that's a fantastic question. I don't know who, who um, asked it, but one of the things I think about is our national narrative, which is very much based on individualism. Like, you know, for instance, the reason I'm successful is because I did all these things myself. Um, that is a very damaging narrative. So for people who um, tend to be successful, you look back and you think about how many, you know, how their social network functions for them, how connected they are, um, how many resources they have, how it really is a group effort. And so when I think about uh, folks who feel as though this is a zero sum game, I think they haven't reflected enough on how they have moved forward. And in fact, most of the reason that they've moved forward is because other people have done things for them. And so when we think about that, you know, when we think about, you know, all of us in that context, and think about how each individual really deserves to be able to have those kinds of, um, the kind of guidance, the kind of support, et cetera. Reflecting on how you got where you are, I think will help open people's minds to realizing it's really not a zero sum game. It's all about all of us kind of supporting each other. So do you have any final thoughts you'd like to share with us before we thank you very much for a very provocative and interesting conversation? I just want to say a huge thanks. Um, this has been great. I am sorry I wasn't there in person and we couldn't do it in person. I think that would have been um, extremely uh, exciting and exhilarating. But I very much value um, you having come and listened to this and your interaction. I want to thank uh, the seminars at Steamboat um, immensely for the opportunity and particularly you, Linda, for your excellent moderation of this conversation. Thank you very much. And to everybody, thank you once again for joining us for our final discussion at Seminars at Steamboat. It's been a pleasure being with you this season. And Camille, it's been a particular pleasure to have you. Thank you very much. Thank you much. very much. Thank, thank you. Bye-bye. This has been a special presentation of Seminars at Steamboat. For more information about the seminars, visit seminarsatsteamboat.org. The podcast was produced by Ryan Thompson for KUNC. Special thanks to Jenny Lay, Doug Usher, and the Steamboat Pilot and Today for their support. Music is When I'm With You by Scott Holmes. Find more of his work at scottholmesmusic.com. This is KUNC. 